0: Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this week's episode, Phil Yule sits down with Marvin McNeil, Stephanie Doctor, Alan Reese, and Maya Cunningham to talk about their experiences at the conference and the fantastic papers they presented and heard.
1: My name is Phil Yule, and I'm here with Marvin McNeil, Steph, Dr. Alan Reese, and Maya Cunningham. And we're going to have a conversation about the Theorizing African-American Music Conference that took place in June of 2022 in Cleveland. Uh, It was so great to have you all participating. Uh, Marvin uh, submitted a paper. I didn't know his name before he came, but he gave a wonderful paper on, um, it was entitled, We Are the Bears, How an Historically Black University Marching Band constructs community through music making so the two parts i guess marvin would be just you know take us give us a minute about who you are where you're teaching what you're doing and then talk a little bit maybe about your um paper which was outstanding i really liked it a lot
2: oh well thank you phil thank you first of all for inviting me to this uh podcast and uh you know, like Phil said my name's Marvin McNeil and I'm currently at a, a brand new position for me at the Oxford College of Emory, the assistant uh professor of music and African American studies and thank you and this is uh for me it's a it's a new career I was I spent my first 21 years as a band director <laughs> so um at the crossroads uh when I was at Wesleyan University um I, you know, I, I was at the University of Connecticut and then at the crossroads of my career, I decided to um, take a chance and go back to school and study ethnomusicology. So I went back and and uh, obtained my master's and Ph.D., which I still have a few little things to defend <laughs> to uh, make it official, but it should be done in the next couple of weeks, in a month or so. Excellent. And so, thank you.
1: Um, okay, we're, we'll get into the topic of your paper. I think a little bit. Let's just go and have some introductions here, and keep moving here. Uh, Stephanie Doctor is next on my screen. Stephanie gave a really interesting paper: uh, the ways of white folks, Fletcher Henderson's "White Man Stomp" from 1927, and the sonic theorization of black music. And I should also mention, I know, I knew Stephanie's name. She had just submitted a proposal and, and, and got accepted. I knew her name because she wrote a great piece on uh, John Powell, this really awful person, uh, white supremacist. He was integral in the Racial Purity Act or Racial Integrity Act, I think it was called, in Virginia in 1924. He was one of the authors, a very famous composer and a pianist at the University of Virginia, um, and Stephanie unpacked some of, uh, well, his horribleness, but in a very scholarly and, and, and appropriate way. So I, I knew her from that. Uh, Stephanie, just uh, maybe introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm Steph Doctor, and I'm an assistant professor of music studies at Temple University. I teach music theory courses here, and I was hired to... Um, quote unquote, diversify the curriculum, but what I hope will happen is uh, change the curriculum in ways that um, meet students' needs and um, work towards anti-racism. And my work is on the intersections between race, sound, and capitalism. And right now I'm working on a book um, that's examining the white supremacist foundation of the recording industry, especially as it pertains to the formation of jazz.
1: Excellent. Excellent. I can't wait for that to come out um alan's next on my screen uh alan who also gave a paper by the uh and your paper uh it was on Undine smith's moore's a measure of freedom one conflict and quotation in Undine smith moore's before i'd be a slave a brilliant piano piece which by the way i chose as some entry music for this series uh the the first 30 seconds of that i had my colleague at uh, hunter college jeff burleson uh did a great performance of that and that's going to be the intro music to this series um so uh, you you have a little bit of, I'm giving you a shout out there. Uh, tell us about um,
3: what you do a little bit, Alan. Well, I have to say first that that, that would be a heck of an opening uh, for the right? intro music. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so my name is Alan Reese. I um, teach music theory right now at the Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And uh, I just started in August. In the last four years, I was at the Cleveland Institute of Music. Uh, so right next door to the conference. Uh, most of my work has been on uh, 20th century Polish music, uh, specifically Carl Szymanowski and Grzegna Batsewicz. Um, but, you know, recently I've been getting into the music of Andeen Smith Moore and, and some other projects.
1: That's great. Um, you had a wonderful back and forth with Tammy Kernodal after your paper. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but let's, um, the before we do that, bring in Maya here and I'm going to, uh, just say, as I've said about everybody, a little bit, a little something. Maya, I invited to um, moderate a session, and she's moderated a session called Pedagogies, uh, which was which was great. But she first came on my radar uh, after I watched this great series that she was um, curating uh, as a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, right in ethnomusicology. Um, and it's called The Cat's Talk Back and it was just mesmerizing. She had Steve Coleman, I think Reggie Workman was on on yes. one, right? Uh sheet Waits and Eric Rivas and just these really heavies, you know, in African American music. And it was just such so brilliantly put together. I'm like, well, this is a person I need to reach out to and just kind of uh, you know, have a conversation with because I want to know what she's thinking about in terms of uh not just African American music obviously, but just music. So, um I was so pleased when she uh, Agreed to come and moderate, and just maybe, Maya, tell us a little bit more about yourself.
4: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure, and such a, everyone's work is so fascinating. I can't wait to get into the conversations. Um, so, I consider myself to be an Africanist and African Americanist ethnomusicologist, um, and I emphasize that because I think that uh, I just I follow the uh, the the work and the guidance of um, the great uh, Doctor. Enkatiya who said to understand truly African diasporic musics, they must be understood um, in parallel and through the perspectives and in conjunction with African music traditions. And so uh, that's why I I straddled both continents um, with with my research and my work. Um, I'm also a jazz vocalist. So I'm doing a project on the, on the um, understanding the Africanity of African American music through the lens of the South African tradition, and investigating the bi musical ear of Black South African musicians who both work in um, what has become an indigenized uh, tradition, an indigenized jazz tradition there, and in traditional musics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can talk more about that a little later. Uh, you know, I. I'm completing a PhD at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm also an assistant um, professor at Berkeley College of Music, and I also teach uh, Black Music um, courses at MIT. So I'm glad to be here. I'll, I'll save the rest for uh, for a little later. But just a little uh-huh. talk, a little little smidgen on the Cats Talk Back. Please. I'm really dedicated to uh, contributing major interventions um, and reclamation work. Concerning African American traditional musics like jazz, by centering the voice of the of the culture bearers who continue to create the music.
1: That's great, and you know what, Maya? Let's uh, just have a conversation, and and uh, I, I think that's the best way to to do this. And and all the topics of your papers and your work, I think you can help to weave in. I'd love to hear a little bit more about marching bands at HBCUs, for example, Marvin. I think that's just so very interesting because it's such a huge part of HBCU culture. Um, But since Maya just mentioned it, I remember this part, I think it was Steve Coleman who was talking about uh, reclaiming jazz as African American music. And he said, look, we call it Italian music, you know, Italian music and German music. Why, why shouldn't we call it African American music? We should. And then he said, and they would call me racist for even saying so. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was so poignant because that's true. When black uh, scholars talk about race, just the idea of challenging white power structures immediately brands us as racists, right? It's just—it's a simple, facile, actually, a, a trick of, of white, white racial framing. But could you speak to that, to that a little bit? Kind of go deeper into that idea of of uh, of, of reclaim reclamation that your project was doing.
4: So the cats talk back was the. Uh an effort in this hundred year history of Black musicians reclaiming, claiming, uh, attempting to take ownership of of their music. And so that that conversation stretches all the way back or that issue stretches all the way back to uh, the original Dixieland jazz band, claiming themselves as the original Dixieland jazz band and black musicians in New Orleans not wanting to record, not wanting their music to be taken, but it was anyway. And so there's this long history of um of African Americans not having or trying to exert agency. Um, so that being said, uh, for Steve to say he said that because I will I'll quote I'll quote the great Archie Shepp, as he was um, quoted in uh, John Baskerville's article on Black nationalism and and jazz, we create the music; they own it.
5: Mm, right. And
4: so, and so, um, this is a dynamic uh, that that you know where 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 white corporations, white individuals control and own and profit the most from jazz, whereas jazz musicians continue to create it. And so, um, the reason why Steve said that is because still, and particularly now that the, the audience has been whitened uh, mm-hmm, and, the, mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. and the face of jazz has been whitened in the public narrative, uh, in publications, venues that present the music, et cetera, um, for him to make a statement like that as a musician who needs to work um, mm-hmm. and who unfortunately is at the mercy of that power structure that is white controlled and that has um, in many many different ways as I said uh, tried to whiten the music so right. for him to say that as a black musician um, to claim it as a black music when there is a public narrative and that's uh, in full throttle that calls it an American music Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and claims it as a national music right? Um, as other musics in the Americas have been other black musics have been claimed as a national music as national musics um, is is something that he knows it draws persecution that's why he even contacted me you know that's... because I did a I did a radio show called bebop is black and he said oh someone's finally talking about these issues yeah. um and trying to to create interventions so that's why he that's why he mentioned that
1: and that's extremely important. You know, I, I don't need to tell you, but I'm telling the listeners that Amiri Baraka was crucial in in laying some of these things out, even in the 60s, right? In his compilation, Black music, he he, he commented on these things that, whereas before there was quote unquote Negro music, now it has become quote unquote American music. If it, if it has been stripped of its Blackness and then kind of presented to mainstream America. I'm going to bring in Alan here because he talked on Undine Smith Moore. Of course, she was a Black woman. A fascinating composer and a music theorist, um, but she would have never been considered as a music theorist because music theory would not have allowed her to be considered as such. And I remember Alan during your paper, um, you you did talk about some of the the humanistic side, some of that uh, the blackness of Undine Smith Moore, and I and that was and I was happy about that. I, I should just say also that I was uh, consciously, if I can step back uh, in, in terms of. Uh, asking people to join today I intentionally wanted to have a black man a black woman a white man and a white woman I'm just going to say that out out loud because I think it's important Marvin uh, is is black Stephanie is white and Alan is white and Maya is black so I'm interested in these perspectives and how they kind of obviously we're all colleagues here and, and 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 this is a very respectful discussion as they always should be. Um, but I remember Terry, uh, Tammy Kurnodal's comment after your paper, Alan, where where she was essentially, I think, saying something like, you've done some of that work in kind of reconnecting some of the, well, the blackness to the actual music itself, as, as Maya was just saying that, that, that's how important that is to actually understand Black music. You can't separate it, and you should not. It's it's inappropriate to do to do so. Yet we in music theory, of course, are really good at that, scrubbing the blackness of something in order to make make it uh, uh, legitimize it to, to the white structures. Can you kind of uh, talk a little bit about that, Alan? Um, some of the the things that, as a white person, as a white man, that you're dealing with, um, and and Tammy's uh, response to your paper.
3: Absolutely, yeah. So you know, for the last several years, I've been really interested in trying to diversify the repertoire that I've been looking at in teaching and in my research, but especially in my teaching. And a lot of that work takes a lot of labor, sometimes uncompensated, uh, trying to find as many examples to diversify the core. But certainly what I've mostly struggled on is trying to, I guess, answer the title of the conference of theorizing uh, Mm -hmm. in a different way. Whereas I felt that I was good at throwing the same kind of analytical gizmos at different kinds of music uh, and coming up with, I think, engaging analyses that I'm very happy with and that my, you know, I've been able to share with my students and they've shared with me. Uh, but really thinking about stuff in a different way, coming up with new methodologies has been something that I've I am still really struggling with, trying to think of things in a different way, because you know, that we we've been trained, I've been trained very well to think in a particular way. And with that paper, um you know, certainly i I was trying to get at some different way of thinking about the piece by focusing, uh, particularly on this very loose quotation or what I consider to be a loose quotation of the uh, spiritual. Oh, sorry. Al-
1: Alec, can I press you a little bit on this this idea? Oh, sure. you, you've been trained to think a certain way. i I think I know what you mean by that, but I'd love to hear you kind of expound on that a little bit, but and then continue on with the the paper.
3: I I think that I've been trained at least in certain kinds of tools that allow me to um, either kind of solve the piece um, in a Mm. certain way that uh, often focuses on particular kinds of, I think, narratives that come out. So for instance, in this Undine Smith Moore piece, it was in essentially a conflict narrative, which is about as old as time in terms of, you know, analytical narratives that you throw at a piece. Mm -hmm. And I I feel that, you know, I was using the language I was taught to try to get at something different. And frankly, I don't know if I entirely succeeded. I mean, I felt happy with my analysis, but in terms of doing something new, I'm not sure sure about that.
1: (laughs) When you said uh, using an analytical gizmo, that really also... (laughs) caught my ear because we do very much use these analytical gizmos and in the most basic sense we talk about linear progressions and, and harmonic syntax and you know all of the things that that these are the gizmos that we throw at different types different repertoires right um uh, a little bit about tammy's comment that i thought was so uh poignant
3: um yeah because I, I was i was getting at the piece where i was um or what i was trying to say was i was focusing on this loose quotation um of the spiritual that the where the piece gets its name from and trying to kind of talk about how it's uh you know coming from a different style from the rest of the piece which felt very you know sort of European American modernist and just truly brutal kind of soundscape that she created and especially compared to her other work and then suddenly this the spiritual, this pentatonic, you know, little figure comes out of, you know, of nowhere, uh, and really contrasts uh, between these two styles. And I was trying to use that lens to kind of get at that piece and also get into um, uh, Undie Smithmore's biography as well, because this was coming around the same time she was starting to do a lot more with spirituals and arranging spirituals was what she is, I think, most, uh, probably most known for. Um, but I I feel like I was only scratching the surface at Mm -hmm. at that element, I think. Um, And then of course, uh, Tamia Cronoda was, was, was talking about that. And she, of course, I believe studied with her, if I'm correct, or certainly Uh, knew her at least. Knew her. Yeah. I actually could not remember. Yeah. Um, And so just, yeah, hearing some of, um, you know, I wish it was all transcribed, but, but hearing a lot of her comment about, you know, bringing in a lot more of that information about how uh, more thought and taught, um, I think was was really really helpful. That is really half the battle for us, right,
1: in music theory because we're really taught very strongly to not do that. Oh, that's history. Oh, that's ethnomusicology. That's not what we do that's of course nonsense let's just have a group nod it it easily easily could be what we do if we chose to do it and i that's just a constant refrain one hears from black music scholars is please don't take away the blackness uh of 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 music genre x music genre y don't do that um it was always wrong so let's just have a group nod and then move forward and i love the fact that you were already moving in that direction and it seemed to me tammy's comments were, were basically like just keep going in that direction a little further and, and you're going to you know this is really going to be good and, and she's absolutely right one little caveat of course is it's really hard to get published and you're you know pre-tenure and and publishing is in music theory is hard regardless um, but if you don't actually buy into what I of course have called the music theory's white racial frame it's hard to to see those things to get them to the light of day, to, in order to for you to be successful in your career, of course these things are changing, and um, and and we hope that they continue to change. And I'd love to hear some comments from you about this because I know you have some. Um, I, I'm interested to hear what kind of brought you to a social justice um, mindset to, to, to write about uh, Fletcher Henderson or before that John Powell, as I've already cited, uh, because it seems to me that you really have a, a pretty good understanding that we can't be separating out people's lives from the music that we analyze and study. And I think that that's that's so admirable and I, I maybe if you could just give us a little background on how that how you came to music to, to to think about and conceive of music in that way
0: yeah um so I'm not technically a music theorist I didn't go to Eastman and um you know I went University to University of
1: Virginia right? yeah that's right. that's right
0: so we don't actually have uh the disciplines they're you know designed to kind of blur and, and we're not supposed to be, we have a technically have a degree in critical and comparative studies in music. Um, but I've always centered my methodologies around music analysis. My questions have always been, how can we find the answers in the sound? But because I have this sort of, you know, historical training, I technically worked with Carl Hextra Miller, who's a historian and Bonnie Gordon, um, was a, uh, major influence in my life. Um, I've been always interested in the people and the culture aspect of it. I actually grew up in Georgia and I grew up in Forsyth County where the KKK was still extremely active and visible. Um, So I was, you know, I really was immersed in white supremacy and saw it. Um, So I think I was very inclined to tackling that aspect of my life growing up and um, as a working class first-gen student who felt sort of like uncomfortable and like I didn't fit in I'm just really interested in issues of power and inequality and there was space for that in musicology so um, and history so that's where I sort of gravitated towards um, and bootstrapped my way through music theory and then for some reason, Temple hired me, which uh, under, under music theory, which I'm super, I tricked them, but I'm super excited about that. But that's sort of how I got to those, um, those issues. And I think one thing I'm struggling with is actually how to position myself in the field of music theory, because I am going to continue to talk about, you know, how do we hear inequality um, and how can we theorize sound in terms of race and gender and sexuality um, and, I'm not sure where that fits in some of the, the published discourse, but also things like conferences, you know, that mm-hmm. aren't theorizing African-American music, so.
1: Right, right. Mar- Marvin, I want to get to you, but before I do, can I come back to Maya and maybe ask, um, you know, ha- we're having a conversation here. Maya, do you, um, just, just based on what what we've been talking about here and also just your experience, Maya, do you think that, uh, how, how would you rate, like, the, the, the changes taking place in our American Music Academies, if you could kind of like give a, a general view of, of what you think is happening. It's a difficult question, I know, something I get get asked quite a bit. But, I, but from your perspective, you know, kind of in African-American studies, music studies, kind of connecting these dots. Um, how do you see things uh, in, in our music academies currently?
4: I mean, I can try to. Just speak from my own experience. It does seem like there's been a responsive shift that's happening, been happening since 2020. Um, but I don't know. I think the I, I'm going to just speak very, very frankly. I think that the people to to really give that answer are the people who don't that are that have less power to really to really uh, say, "Oh, is this really changing?" So I mean, I think that there's a seems to be a I hope that I'm answering this correctly, but or trying or like being responsive to what you asked, but I mean, there seems to be an effort um amongst some you know uh academics, but I mean, I think that at one at the musicology conference. This was before 2020. I was waylaid by a scholar who's lots of power at a, at a university in the southern region, mm-hmm. who gave an hour to explanation of why her the, the picture she found of her grandfather in blackface wasn't wrong. You oh, know, goodness. And in the article she was writing about it. So, yeah, it's,
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a difficult, but I, I, I do enjoy or not enjoy, but I, I recognize that, that dynamic that you're, that you're the picture that you're painting there, because that's something that I've seen play out many, many times because those who actually do have power. Well, in music theory, uh, I, I often say and, and have written that it's 94% white people. Those are people with tenure in music theory fact that's from society music theory. Um, you know, it's it's pretty obvious that they have written rules and policies to benefit their own belief system about what music should be, what it can be, and how we should teach it. That's human nature. It's not even that I'm blaming anybody. You know, they're writing policies to benefit themselves, right? Um, but I would hope that anybody, including the 94% of my colleagues um, who have tenure in music theory, could see the injustice and realize that it actually impoverishes themselves and it impoverishes music for absolutely everybody. Um, It's hard to look in the mirror when you are senior in rank and you've devoted your whole life to one way of thinking about music. And that one way has Beethoven and Mozart and Bach up on a hallowed hilltop. And then it very much in a vertical structure, right? Other people and composers and musics going down um, from from there, um, it's very hard to look in the mirror and realize this is not okay when you are when you have the power itself and you realize that you sh- you're going to need to seed some of that power. I think Steph has something to say, and then Maya is going to jump in again.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to add to that because I think even you know aside from the example that um, Maya shares, there's the cohort of people who are really committed to preserving that, right? And preserving these white supremacist traditions and aren't shy about it. And then there's another group of people, of colleagues who are well-meaning, right? And they want to diversify the curriculum in some way, but um, they're they're, they are prone towards solutionism, which you so greatly critique in your article. Um, and what I see in a lot of because I've been talking to a lot of uh, theory departments about their curriculum changes is, well you know, can we add William Grant still and stir um, instead of thinking about broadly these white supremacist structures, um, there's a I don't even think they know how to rethink the curriculum in in ways that really break down white supremacy. And I think, unfortunately, it takes a lot of discomfort. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of conversation. And what I'm seeing is an impetus to just really quickly find new changes in the curriculum, instead of okay, let's um, let's start by just reading and having conversations with each other for a year and listening yeah. and interviewing yeah. students, et cetera. Um,
1: I love the interviewing students part of what you just said. I mean, I I loved everything you just said, Steph, but interviewing students, in other words, engaging with people who are younger than we are, because to a very large extent, some of the problems that we face in academic music are generational, right? Um, Younger folks just kind of understand some of these things. And the senior folks are very often so ensconced in what they've been doing. They tend to still think in a very top-down fashion whereby they say things like, Oh, well, they just haven't, their, their musical taste just has haven't quite matured yet. They'll come around, right? They'll see the the light, they'll they'll understand the greatness of the great masters, right? Um, which is extremely, in my opinion, offensive language that uh, really should be just banished from the music academies, great masters of the Western canon and the pinnacle of musical civilization and things like this nonsense that we talk about. Maya, did you have something to say before we get to Marvin?
4: Uh, just uh, something new that just happened that kind of speaks to all of this. I was just a part of a, a symposium, kind of a think tank thing at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Okay. And it was called, um, let's see, a music theory curriculum for the 21st century. Hmm brought together theorists, ethnomusicologists, and other folks from different parts of the country. And then there were we talked all through these um these 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 issues and it was really interesting, you know, to hear thoughts. There were people at different, you know, levels in their career. There were chairs of departments. There were, you know, uh, assistant professors, all that. So um people mid in mid-career. So it was interesting. Um, and, and I guess the the solution or the 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 idea was um what how do we move forward, what to do?
0: Mm-hmm. You know.
4: Um, so anyway, I I can mention a little more about that later.
1: Okay, thanks. Um, Marvin, I'd I'd love to bring you in here. And before we talk a little bit about your paper, which I thought was so interesting, maybe you can comment or respond to some of these themes that we've been talking about. Um, And so maybe a broad question first, how do you see things changing? Um, I, I don't I'm not the kind of person who asks, well, what do we, what should we do? Right. Do we, you know, cause that's just, you know, that's the solutionism that Steph just mentioned. Uh, rather, I, I do like to say like, how, how, what's your interpretation of how things are changing and, and, you know, in what directions, sometimes they're in bad directions, right. but we hope that they're in good directions where you're teaching and just generally like in academic music. What, what's your take uh, right. on, on those big issues?
2: Well, first of all, the reason why, you know, I am where I am now and took this path after teaching band for 21 years is because I I had those questions in my mind. And, you know, I think um, I struck out because I was not finding those answers in, you know, the collegiate band world, which, you know, band music in itself is is under theorized, understudied in, in certain areas, um, but also within, I'm not a music theorist, but, you know, as a music educator, I had to go through the music education, you know, uh, component of it, and then, you know, teaching for quite a while in, in PWI institutions. So I was the, you know, kind of the oddball uh, there, but I began to ask my que- uh, the questions, you know, we keep replicating the canon, we'll talk in the band world, you know, Percy Granger. And but we never would extract, you know, we never would put, you know, the life of and the music together with
1: heaven forbid, heaven forbid. He was not a very nice person, that person, (laughs) Ranger. (laughs)
2: Right, right. And so, you know, that began my question of how, you know, I can expand how we engage in the study of music and the whole humanly organized sound and why, and, and and kind of strip it down to its bare core. Even when I was at the University of Connecticut, I found out after maybe the third or fourth year, I was actually in Hale Smith's office. Hell Smith wasn't even brought up in most of the courses there. And, you know, most people don't know about Hell Smith's great work. And so, you know, taking off of what Maya was talking about and, and Katia's work, um, my entry into this reimagining, you know, as Dwight, Doctor Dwight Andrew said, you know, what does the study of African American music look like moving forward? I felt like I had to strike out on my own and, you know, come up with some solutions and, you know, some ideas. And, and as I say, be the change you want in the world. And. And that brought me to New Orleans. And actually, um, I studied New Orleans brass bands before HBCU marching bands down there studying with this band called the TBC brass band. And, you know, what blew me away, it was my first time engaging in brass bands by the youth on the streets. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time with the uh, brass bands on the streets in the second line parades, you know, and, you know, not so uh, nice areas but most importantly engaging in intellectual conversations with uh in my case it was mainly young men about music about life about theory about core changes about this and that and even in um you know research in ethnomusicology uh papers and and books, really never boil down to the, the production factor of it. It's usually cultural, they play for the parades and this is part of this tradition and so forth and so on. And so um, now I'm seeing as as uh, Maya was saying it was a reckoning in, in 2020 for for many reasons, but I'm seeing, you know more attention from, you know more areas you know, music theory being you, you push that envelope, but mm-hmm. also that trickled into the other areas as well with the uh, band research. And of course, you know, the band um, tradition was still good old boys, you know, good old basically white boy uh, clubs. And then, you know, now we're starting to incorporate and, and diversify and reach out and, and engage in the excellence of women and people of you know, all ethnicities. And so Mm
5: -hmm.
2: I think what we were, what uh, um, Alan was, you know, alluding to or talking and yourself earlier is just, we have to break it down this, you know, um, psychological brainwash that was used to perpetuate the system in the first place, right? We put this as we have to make, uh, you know, everything adhere to this. Yes, we have structure, we have this, but, you know, looking at at African Americans as uh, humans before the Atlantic slave trade um, is very important because we think, you know, a lot of this research is like, well, they're not, you know, until America made these people. No, <laughs> you know, and uh, my research intersects with um, community, the ways we can see community, where we can learn how to community uh, within the band. Area and that reason being is that when I um, spent time with the brass bands and also my other research site, was, which which uh, was Morgan State University, I could see these um, connections. They're similar cities far apart, based around the band, but within these uh, contexts, you had these systems that were basically like cultural capital per se. And so when we look at, you know, the HBCU band, the sound and the uniqueness, but on the outside, but in the inside, it's it's a lot of this uh, continuation of what, you know, Nketiah writes about community and music and musicing for community. Um, and so I'm looking to expand, you know, that thought process as well, mm-hmm. and then attach the theorizing of the actual sounds that are made, For example, um, spending time with the TBC brass band, they have three trombones and he was talking about counterpoint playing amongst the three. Mm -hmm. A person A has to know where person B is going, person B has to know where, you know, uh, and that's part of that collective improvisation, which is, you know, from New Orleans from the very beginning. And that collaboration, that engagement, that understanding where someone comes in, someone goes out being replicated you know, constantly through the music, somehow, you can see in the actions of the members of the group. So I'm trying to connect that sound, you know, with uh, human behavior.
1: That's excellent. Mm -hmm. Marvin, let me stay with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And and let's pivot now and talk a little bit about the conference before we uh, get off the Mm -hmm. call. Um, I just did some back of the envelope calculations here in terms of the representation at theorizing African-American music. not 100% certain about this, so don't hold me to it. But I think out of all the people who presented or moderated, um, I counted 25, uh, sorry, 24 Black people, 26 white people, and three Asian Americans. So 27 people of color, 26 white people. Uh, Which is, you know, pretty, pretty uh, half and half, which uh, is even a little bit better. uh, Well, different from our country writ large, but better Mm -hmm. in the sense that there are even more more representation of BIPOC, because our country is about 60% white currently.
5: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So Marvin, tell me about you, some of the impressions. Uh, of course, I, I I loved your paper where you got into some of the things you were talking just talking about. But a pre- impressions about being at this conference, thinking about you know representation and who who's there doing what. Um, I'd love to just hear. And 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 uh, definitely, this is a question for the rest of the group here too. Um, but let's start with Marvin.
2: Right. First of all, I felt it was a very supportive environment. You know, me as a um, A new scholar in this area, you know, there was a little bit of nervousness and, you know, hesitancy about what I was about to engage in. But I found that coming into it, there was a relevancy for the scholarship. And I think that comfort level really inspired me to rethink, to be open, to see uh, different, many wide varied avenues into theorizing music and what African-American music and what does that you know, me and what, you know, what, what, how can we move forward mm-hmm. with this? I would say during my paper, uh, well, the response, the question and answer period was probably the most inspiring, you know, portion of the, of my experience. Although one, I have one other tidbit, which is very special, but, you know, to have um, scholars that I've, read and you look up to and it's you know there's the awe factor even yourself you know they get oh, an email goodness. from you and just like wow. stop <laughs> oh stop, and, stop. Uh, but but as you know someone who's restarting a career and and questioning you know is this the right thing am i looking at the you know into the you know the right um you know topics and 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 right. so forth and so on what's the but, tidbit well, the tidbit is our, our moderator was um, Naomi Andre, you know, uh, the great Naomi Andre. Yes. And so um, in addition to her um, preparation for us to, you know, arrive and she make sure everything's all right. She, she asked, I would like to have lunch, you know, with, I forgot the other presenter, mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. name, but I'd like to have a lunch and I'd like to... Um, treat both of you um, afterwards and so um, sure so we mm. went over to the um the restaurant area and not only did she buy us lunch she had taken notes on her mm. presentation you know wow. things that we can improve on but things we did well on and, mm. and things moving forward and she spent that time with us yeah. You know, and I think that goes back to that community, yep. you know, it's that responsibility of passing down as mm-hmm. we learned in New, early New Orleans, you know, it's passing down the uh, the culture. I mean, and so I think, you know, those experiences and she would never promote that. But for me, right. that's life changing.
1: That's ex- so, so very important. I want to bring in Alan here um, if I could, but before I do, I would just want to maybe emphasize what Marvin just said that, um, you know, people like Naomi Andre, it's not only are they outstanding scholars in, in in doing what they're doing and pushing us to think in new ways, but they're just so welcoming and, and um, humble, right? And I've often said that I'm a newbie in terms of quote unquote theorizing African American music. I'm a Russianist, right? I spent seven years in Russia. I'm a cellist. I'm a music theorist. I did everything the way I was supposed to do, quote unquote, right? Um and uh, I just reached out. Of course I knew some of the names. I I've known Horace Maxwell uh for for quite some time now, almost 20 years, I would say. Um, but but very there are very few blacks in music theory, right? Proper. Um, but I just started reaching out to people um, well before this conference uh, last summer. And the responses were like, absolutely. I would love to do that. And, uh, and Naomi was one of them and, and, and Tammy Kernodle. It's not like she's not busy, right? (laughs) She's very busy, but she was so supportive and just open arms. And, and I, I think I even said something in my opening comments to the effect that we, we should all be so welcoming and just, you know, open hearts, open minds as as so many of the people I reached out to him had have had great con, it's really just been exhilarating. Actually, not that I don't like Russian music theory or cello playing, you know, it's just that the career, my career, has taken a little bit of a turn. I still do play cello and 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 think about Russian music, but um, it's just a, it's an enriching, a greatly enriching environment. I'm sorry, I went on a little bit too long there, but Alan, I'd love because Alan's very much on the inside of music theory, right? You're a white man and and you got a PhD at Eastman, one of the finest programs in the country for that. Um, and yet you came to this conference, which was not like a theory conference, right? It was, it was different. So I'd love to hear some impressions and, and reactions from you.
3: Sure. I think that was one of the more rewarding aspects of the conference was having musicology, ethnomusicology, music theory, just music adjacent fields all Uh, combined, and for instance, being able to get feedback from people like Tammy Cronodal, who normally wouldn't be at my paper, and I wouldn't be at at, at her work and stuff, uh, unless you sort of cross into AMS every other year uh, at the the national conferences. Um, So that I found really rewarding, because, you know, as you were talking about, I, like, in in my education, unless you sought it out, musicology and ethnomusicology classes especially ethnomusicology, I mean, I never had an ethnomusicology course at all, uh, which I just kicked myself for never pursuing that. But I had to, of course, actively pursue it because it just wasn't considered necessary as part of the curriculum. Um, And so just being able to be exposed to that and being able to be exposed to their questions and insights was really, really rewarding. Mm -hmm. Um, I I also, there are several papers that I, I very much enjoyed at the conference that I thought were Especially compared to mine, really trying to go, go after rethinking how we do theory, how we, um, what our methodologies are. So, for example, example uh, Danielle Brown's paper that was looking at uh, polyrhythm and form and trying to rethink how we approach that, mm-hmm. or uh, Stephen Hudson on um, the sort of dominant sus chords and just try, trying to rethink that from a different perspective. I, I just found that really rewarding because it gave me like. I don't know, a glimmer of a path uh, to where I could go forward in terms of rethinking things. And mm-hmm. I would say the final thing that I found really rewarding was um, seeing some of my former students there. Uh, one, of course, being Chris Jenkins, who you know helped <laughs> put the conference together. And of course... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't claim really any credit whatsoever for that. I mean, he's one of the most impressive people I've ever met. But uh, but yeah, just having in one of my first grad classes ever. And I remember just reading his critiques of the readings that I would assign each week. And I just really got my brain uh, thinking. Uh, I would made grading a lot more enjoyable, I have to say. Um, and then also one of my other former students, I remember at the, uh, the final keynote panel, uh, just gave this really kind of just essentially thanked you all uh, for the mm-hmm. conference and a sort of a, a tearful thank you. And that was just uh, really moving to see someone who had been to, you know, Cleveland Institute of Music for four years, which is this classical only institution. It, it's built into the mission statement. And, you know, he, he really hadn't gotten anything like that uh, before. And I are, just, just seeing how that touched him was was really something.
1: Are you speaking of the, ba- the black bass player, Drew? Yeah, Drew. Those yeah, touches. Drew. Drew Collins. Yeah. Drew Collins, right. Yeah, that was a very touching moment, I think, for everybody. because And he choked up a little bit because he he just was like, I I just didn't even think this was possible. And just to hear that from a Black uh, classical musician, I mean, Chris and I worked very hard, as you could imagine, to get this conference off the ground. And there were lots of question marks before we were arriving in Cleveland, um, certainly from my side. But at that moment, I said to myself, well, everything was worth it. Everything was worth it at that moment. I realized that like, just by providing or or creating this space for a person like him to just say, wow, look at all of these Black people and non-Black people talking about Black music like it should be and always should have been talked about, right? Um, because it's just not the way that our music academies are set up. They're set up to denigrate. They're set up to dismiss and that because they're part of our it's it's not so much their music academies, it's that they're American music academies. And that's what our country still has to grapple with um, this this denigration of the other, the other being non-white, of course, because, um, you know, there was a time where there were no, quote unquote, white people in, in North America, obviously. Maya and Steph, um, I am i don't know to whom uh, who to go to next, but um, uh, Let's just say Maya, Do you have some general um, impressions about the conference before we get off the call?
4: Uh, you know, <clears throat> similar impressions. You know, I was very excited to be there. I think quite a lot about what it means to theorize African-American music, thinking about internal indigenous theorization of different African-American musics. Um, and of course, how that speaks to my own research. I formed great relationships, met, you know, um, other scholars, you know, across disciplines, other Black scholars, you know, we really had lots of great informal conversations. I have really enjoyed um, all of the papers I attended, but particularly the one on Yusuf Latif. Mm. Um uh, Mark Hannaford. Hannaford. Mark Hannaford. Yes. Um I'd I'd seen L- Yusuf Latif's um he actually was a professor, long time professor at my university. And um I'd seen his writings and um his I mean he was a music theorist, but as were many mm-hmm. of the African American uh, jazz musicians. And um and they write, but they're not I don't think that, you know, I mean from what I'm hearing, they're not considered that that to be that formally, but they are. And so um, I'm really interested in investigating that further. And I was just really intrigued, you know, my imagination and my research interests were piqued and, and intrigued. So that was, that's what I can say.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up before I go over to Steph. Um, Yusuf Latif, of course, was a music theorist, yes. but uh, the, the point being here that he would never have been considered as such by American music theory which again is a travesty and it is impoverishing to the field of music theory. Like we don't get to study. I, I, I you couldn't have done it in the nineties when I was a grad student at Yale university. Now you could probably get away with writing a dissertation on use of Latif, certainly at Yale and maybe even at Eastman, which I think is a little more conservative if you don't mind my saying. So it's a pretty conservative place up there and it's a great music school, of course. Um, and I one one point that Mark made at the end in the QA, though, I think is is worth repeating here. and uh because somebody was talking about Yusuf Latif and what a you know using some of the the hagiographic hey, language we use about when we talk about white musicians like he was Titanic and a towering figure and, and all of this stuff. And Mark said, yeah, he was really good at what he did, but I think it's really important just to realize, he was just another really interesting music theorist. There were a lot others besides Yusuf, Yusuf uh, Latif, like Wadadalio Smith and George Russell and and uh, Barry, um, Barry White, um, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or the, or the 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 folks that you had on the Cats Talk Back, Maya. And he just made it, he he kind of, Mark Hannaford, when he made that comment, he's just like, look, yeah, sure, Latif is interesting, but he's one of hundreds. And so let's not stop with one person and say we're done. Like we do with Florence Price now, in our in our student performances in colleges and universities, boom, we played Florence Price. We are good to go. And nothing against Florence Price; she was a great composer who wrote very interesting music. We should have always been playing her music. We that we should have never not been playing Florence Price ever. Period. Um, Steph, do you have anything uh, to add about the uh, your impressions of the conference? I'm uh, I'm I'm always interested to hear.
0: Yeah, I mean, I sort of want to add to that. The the I've actually started because of Mark Hannaford's, uh talk and also his work on George Russell just came out. I've started teaching it in my post tonal uh, theory class as well as my uh, analyzing Black American music course. Um, so I think this this conference really motivated me because of all the incredible papers and the community to really take some make some radical choices, some innovative choices in the classroom, because I realized I'm not alone. I had this whole, you know, room full of people who are doing the same thing and, you know, who would have my back if there was criticism. Um, and I think I saw that really poignantly in the kind of final, um, the final keynote panel. And I think it was Teresa Reed who talked about the NASM requirements. And she mm. just said, I think she just said so loudly and strongly, like the NASM requirements are never an excuse to not change the curriculum because they're written broadly specifically for this reason. And I was like, oh, that's been total bullshit the entire time that people have been <laughs> And that was so empowering. And then to have A.D. Carson, you know, next to her, he is changing the curriculum. He is teaching hip hop to students and mm-hmm. they are creating it in the studio at UVA. And so that to me was, you know, the most the most powerful part of it is I left with ideas and I knew I had support to actually create that change immediately.
1: That's excellent stuff. Thanks. Maya had something to say?
4: One little thing I found out um, after... Looking into it a little more after the paper, the diagram that uh, Latif presents in his book "Repository Repository of Scales and Melodic Patterns," the spiral-bound book, is he actually got it from John Coltrane. That's mm. one thing to know. Mm-hmm. That's what, and how who, I can't remember who told me that it was a jazz musician who told me that he got it from John Coltrane. Um, one thing, a little comment, since this is going to be, you know, engaged with by many, um, when changing the curriculum no shade or criticism on the teaching of hip-hop, but there is there is a tendency to stereotype black music um, and grab what is visible, what is visible and made visible by non-black controlled corporations. Um, and so I, I worry about that. Um, and I think that in, in engaging black music's uh, and musics of of other groups, it is really important to make informed decisions about the the classical heritage musics of those groups, Um, the musics that speak to and are representative of the long history and identity of those groups, particularly African-Americans, since um, the identity of African-Americans concerning music has been so caught up in the colonial project of the US and and questioned and maligned and distorted. And so I really think it's important to get um, response guidance from, uh, multiple voices, uh, of, of, of leaders and, and others, you know, and make music makers and from, from the group, particularly African-American groups.
1: Indeed. My, I, I would completely echo that. I, um, and in music theory, the history is, is not good in terms of how music theory has engaged with African-American musical genres. Um, whether that genre be jazz, rap, hip-hop, blues, R&B, when it does it, I actually make an analogy. In the history of uh, prisoners and, um, and war, right, and, 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 and colonization, um, oftentimes, uh, over over many, many, many centuries, oftentimes medical doctors have, have conducted medical experiments on prisoners to the point of killing the prisoners, right? And this is, quote, unquote, for the, for the science, uh, you know, for the, for the advancement of mankind, right? Quite literally, just like use them as human guinea pigs, right? And that's just a, the horrors of, of war and how, how horribly humans can treat one another, right? Uh, American music theory has so treated Black American musical genres as a subject to be like a medical experiment on, right? It's just something that we can use for ourselves. It doesn't really matter because it was just written by Black people. Right, it's 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 just it's taken it and it's it's extremely inappropriate. I actually talk a little bit about this in uh, without the medical analogy. Uh, I I have a part in my upcoming monograph about this. It's it's inappropriate the way American music theory has dealt with Black American genres, and we need to make changes. And uh, I have a couple of suggestions in that part. Uh, I won't get into that here, but it is not appropriate. And we, we I mean, I, I said it earlier, the Blackness had to be stripped of a music, like a Mary Baraka said, in order for that music to then be presented as American, of course, never on the level of Schubert and Chopin and Beethoven. Uh, because that that would upset the racial hierarchy, the racial ordering of things. Um, and so uh, I think making these changes and making the connections that Maya is talking about are so incredibly important And I was I was heartened at the conference to, to I didn't see any uh, music theorist mainstream music theorists doing this inappropriate kind of medical, experiments on Black music that, that that I'm talking about. Steph, you have, have something to say, to add?
0: I just wanted to build on that. I was speaking with a friend of mine and she was criticizing the way in which people sort of, what she said, parachute into popular music studies um, because it's their side project or, you know, it's easy. So, and I- I, I'm so glad you said that, Maya, and Phil, just building on that, because I really don't want people, when hearing this podcast, to then just parachute into studying Black music. It is racist to think that you can do that without years, decades of uh, training and exposing yourself to uh, the intellectual leaders within that tradition and the, and the, and the makers. So um, I appreciated that metaphor of parachuting because we see theorists sort of doing it, or this is my side project, or I'm trying to diversify the stuff that I do, you know, um, and it's really problematic. Um, and so it doesn't mean that I, I wouldn't encourage other people to do it. But I think like Maya said, you want to be in conversation with as many people as you can, um, getting as much kind of mentorship throughout that process.
1: That's exactly right. And that's why a conference like this is so important, because this is where you can make some of those connections and draw from different sources and and meet the people who can help you not just parachute in, but actually start to live these things and also to like let go of some of the mythologies that we were taught about the greatness of, of Western and white civilization. Uh not to say that there, there weren't great composers. There were, but the whole building up of a mythology of course is um is something that we should we should be very skeptical of. Um, I'm going to give Maya the last word here on this on this point.
4: Um, two things I would really like uh it would be interesting if- the um those the the composers that are lifted up, the white male composers and when you know were lifted mm-hmm. up so so highly, it would be interesting to really look at the way they were communi- com- creating that music in the context of the history of Europe. It's mm-hmm. something I do with my students. Okay, so what year was this? What was going on? You know, um, how many slave ships were down the street? You know, mm-hmm. who was being sold? Like what the economy of the, of the, you know, how exactly was that ivory imported in and, and procured to create those pianos? I mean, these basic questions, you know, um, that really helped to contextualize um the making of the Western art canon and that right. tradition. And and then last thing, sorry, Please. um, on parachuting in um what happens and I think that you, you mentioned this, um Phil, is that, you know, when someone who doesn't have, who's not conversant with the literature, not conversant with the tradition, is not, you know, in engaged with the culture bearers and kind of wants to drop in, what they do is they rely on commonplace understandings um, and use that as, 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 use those as structures of analysis, which is why we kind of have these same kind of repeating patterns over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so that is something to, to bear in mind and to, to to stop in order to create change.
1: Yeah. And to your first point, Maya, I would cite here um Olivet Ottel's uh, African Europeans and Untold History. It's a book from 2021, um, where she lays out um the the simple fact that there were always Africans in Europe. Um, in fact, there are always Africans everywhere, if you simply realize that all human beings came from Africa, which is an anthropological fact. Um, but at any rate, um, I am going to wrap things up. So I'm Phil Ewell, and I have been talking with Maya Cunningham, Marvin McNeil, Alan Reese, and Steph Doctor. And I just want to thank you all so much for uh, taking some time out today and having this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you. Bye, y'all.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. And of course, a huge thanks to my four panelists, Maya Cunningham, Steph Doctor, Marvin McNeil, and Alan Reese. Another huge thanks to the peer reviewer for today's episode, Eileen Hayes, and also to my colleague, again, Jeff Burleson for playing the opening bumper music by Undine Smith Moore, Before I'd Be a Slave. Join us for a final episode of our uh, summation of Theorizing African-American Music next week. I will be joined by my co-organizer, Chris Jenkins. And we will have a conversation with two of our keynote panelists for the final session, uh, Louise Toppin and Teresa Reed. And we'll be joined by a very special guest whose name I will withhold. You'll have to come back next week to listen to that. Have a great day.
0: Visit our website at smt-pod.org for supplemental materials related to this episode and to learn how to submit an episode proposal. Join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at SMT_Pod. pod. SMT pod's theme music was written by Zheng Chen Liu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening.